Welcome to the Design Your Happiness podcast. I'm your host, Marilee Blair. Let me be your positive light to help you reach your highest potential and put you in an empowered frame of mind every episode. It's time to get excited for our lives and be in charge of designing our happiness every single day. Let's go. Welcome back to the Design Your Happiness podcast. I'm excited to have a special guest on the show today who's going to educate you on the importance of educating your children at an early age with learning specific skills to help set them up for success by the time they enter adulthood. Ray Crony is a business owner with a passion for software development, technology, and automation. Ray has a keen interest in leading teams, growing businesses, and maintaining transparency while creating win-win partnerships with clients. In 2016, Ray founded Senedex Software Solutions and has grown it from an individual consulting effort to a custom software development firm that employs over 40 employees. As founder and president of Senedex Software Solutions, Ray is motivated by helping clients maintain and improve their existing software systems and turning their dreams into a reality. CubeUp Solutions is Ray's nonprofit that he launched this year and is focused on using Rubik's Cubes as a gateway to introduce kids in historically disadvantaged areas to software development and to a bright future. Ray hopes his nonprofit will help change the world and feels that if kids can master and survive the technical world, it will help them lead bright, successful futures as adults. Thank you so much, Ray, for being on the show today and welcome. Well, thank you so much, Ray. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me and thanks for uh, taking the time to, to meet. Ray, let's start the show with your favorite inspiring quote. My favorite inspire. I was thinking about that. I don't know if it's it's not necessarily inspiring, but it's it's kind of a life quote that that I have, and I I, I came up with it. I, I use it in software, and I use it in life, and, it, and it's just a reminder for me. And it's just that every problem has a solution, mm. and it's it's very simple. But oftentimes, when you're in a situation where you don't know what to do, or you feel overwhelmed. I have to sit back and think every problem has, every problem always has a solution. Um, when we're coding, I, I would tell developers, particularly young developers, we, I kind of reword the same thing in a different way. And it's that everything always makes sense because when people are coding, they might run into a bug and they're, they're, they're frustrated. Oh my God, what's, what's going on? Where, where, how am I going to find this bug? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. That's what they'll say. It doesn't make any sense. You have to remind yourself that everything always makes sense mm. and every problem always has a solution. So that I would say those are my favorites, at least for right now. That's a really good quote, though, to tie in. Even it works in the technical world, but that works in life in general, too. Yeah. So when we have issues, it, that's such a great quote to remember that it's okay, there will be a solution or this too shall pass. Like there's things that can be figured out even even in the hard times. So that's such a great quote. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I think and it, it, it just helps people focus. Mm -hmm. Because they're always, when you're doing anything that's challenging, you're building a business, you're starting a nonprofit, you're building podcasts, you're trying to get viewers, whatever it is, you just have to remind yourself, 
I may not know where the solution is, but it's out there somewhere. I, I just need to find it. And yes. That's, that's my challenge. That's the challenge that you face. Not the problem, mm -hmm. but the solution, the being solution-oriented. Yes. It's a more positive way to approach being able to get that solution, too. And how, how have you designed happiness into your look, into your life, Ray? Um, I mean, there, there are different aspects of my life that, um, you know, have varying degrees of happiness or satisfaction. Um, I can, I'll talk a little bit about the financial happiness and, and career happiness, because that's a place where I feel like I've built a lot of happiness and, um, a lot of, a lot of people struggle with certain areas of people's lives where they struggle with happiness. One is relationships. Another one is career. Um, there are a couple other ones that are well known, but th those are two of two of the major ones. Um, but career happiness for me, it was about not settling mm. and just really not putting a time frame on anything and really sticking to what I want until I figure it out, until mm -hmm. I find that solution, just not giving up, not settling. And, you know, I, I'm 46. I was supposed to be way wealthier, way younger, you know, <laughs> career wise. But I, I ref there are a bunch of different paths I could take in life, but I refuse, I, I flat out refuse to do things that didn't make me happy. Um, and I had, it took me a long time to string together different as different um, activities that I liked and find out what I was good at, what I was mm -hmm. weak at, and to string together a, a, a set of activities that I could turn into career happiness and career success and and truly be happy where I'm not forced um, and and it just feels happy. It feels like a space that I'm really content in. So for me, uh, again, just to answer your question a little bit more directly, just not giving up. Sticking to your guns, knowing that you know, you know when you're happy. You know when you mm -hmm. feel happy doing something. And you know when you're not. And um, just really sticking to your guns mm. and not wavering. Now, you might, there may be a sacrifice you have to make for that. Maybe it's going to take longer. But really sticking to your guns and not wavering until you're able to really find that niche that works for you. And then a lot of trial and error, too. And that's good what you said, too. Like, even finding things, doing things that you don't like or that don't bring you happiness that's still helpful in finding your happiness because you know what doesn't work for your life and then you know what you want to do more of to bring you that consistent happiness because we should all know what it feels like to be really happy and yeah, try to keep absolutely. doing that absolutely. and then let's talk about your nonprofit. so can you tell us more about your nonprofit Cube Up Solutions and how you started this nonprofit. Okay, um, Cube Up was something that evolved over time. I, I always had an interest in early childhood education. Um, I always had an interest in technology. Those are probably the two. I have a number of interests, but those are probably two core interests that, that I've had. So much so that when I was in college and I was. Uh, taking computer engineering classes, I called my dad up and I said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about 
quitting computer engineering, I'm going to go be a teacher. And he said, no, I don't know you should do that. It's probably not a good idea. Um, but those are two interests that I always had. So ever since I, I was 20, 22 years old, I've kind of been obsessed with early childhood education and then what makes what makes a person turn into an adult who's very competent at a certain skill set, whatever that skill set is, and what attributes does that person have? You know, how much of it is uh, environment? How much of it is genetic? Uh, and, and just trying to piece those things together. So the seed for Cuba happened when, probably when I was in college, because in college there were some things I was very good at. One of them was writing software. I mean, I used to do. I used to write software for pretty girls in the class. I used to write software for my friends who were struggling with their code. I was the go-to guy for it, and it's. And it, I would pass my software test and hardly have to study. Um, and whereas I struggled a little bit more with math, I struggled a little bit more with with other uh, other. Um, uh, classes and other types of classes. So I was always kind of thinking, you know, what makes that happen, and, and how can you be better? How can you be naturally better at multiple things? Mm. And what what made that happen? So over the years, I kind of distilled it down to the fact that I started coding when I was eight years old. Wow! Um, and I really think that had a huge impact on just my. Ability to absorb problem solving and software, mm-hmm. um, and I was able to get a leg up and perform better in software than I did in, in any of my other classes or types of, of thought patterns. And I really believe it's because I started when I was eight, and I put in a lot of time. I was obsessed, so I worked on it a lot since I was eight years old. And, uh, I think Malcolm Gladwell had a book called Tipping Point. Mm. And he talks about, um, he investigated, you know, people who have a certain amount of talent in certain areas. And he says that I think it's uh, it's 10,000 hours, I believe, that it takes to master something. Mm. So if you look at really successful people, let's say Bill Gates or Paul Allen, um, people who ended up really successful in their later years, they started working on that thing very early. So they started really early working on it, and they they got really good from a young age. And the more I studied, I haven't delved delved deeply into it, but I start to see a lot of um, uh, in from I start to see a lot of feedback that crosses different uh, different skill set areas. So our Joe uh, Joe Rogan was saying that in in jujitsu. If there's certain moves in jiu-jitsu, if you don't learn them by pu- pre-puberty, mm-hmm. you never get it. You're never as good at it unless you're some sort of jiu-jitsu mm. uh, prodigy or something. You, you can yeah. learn it later in life right. if, if your brain is just wired in a very special way. But for the mm-hmm. average person to learn those jiu-jitsu moves, you, they have to learn them pre-puberty. And I started... I started realizing or coming up with the hypothesis, at least, that software development and the ability to code works in the same way. And if you get kids and they start early, you can give them the mental skill set 
to code and to solve the problems efficiently and have them compete in the world versus if you have to wait and you teach them later. So a lot of Cuba started with that. And, um, and frankly, it started also because Rubik's Cubes are very visual mm-hmm. and kids like them a lot. So ultimately, we, we want to teach kids how to code and do genetics and do all sorts of STEM type activities. But starting with the Rubik's Cube is a good way to um, is a good way to start because kids gravitate to it a little bit more and it goes viral. One kid sees another kid, they see their friend doing it, oh, they want to do it. Whereas mm-hmm. writing software doesn't have that kind of visceral attraction to kids that, that cubing does. So mm-hmm. that's how we settled on using the Rubik's Cube as a gateway into STEM technology. Um, and that's and all my experiences through life are kind of pointing towards the earlier the better, the mm-hmm. earlier the better, the earlier the longer the better, as far as as t- teaching kids how to cue or teaching kids how to write software and think in that way uh, from an early age, and, and that early exposure is going to lead to adult competence mm-hmm. for ideas to give children really early exposure. So they can be very competent as adults. That's incredible. That's why I, I love what you're doing because I think more people need to realize that if we can teach our children earlier and how much more knowledge they can retain, they're going to be much smarter and brighter adults than you know, all of the previous generations, because it's important to teach them young. And I know um, you were telling me a little bit offline that some of the ages, they can be um, five or even younger. You said that can learn all of this? Absolutely. absolutely. Um, So we, the Rubik's Cube, we teach, I started, my daughter really got a little bit more comfortable when she was probably five, five, she got a little bit more comfortable. And I probably could have taught her earlier if I had the right techniques, but after teaching her, I, I learned, I got better at teaching young kids because mm-hmm. the challenges you have with young kids are a little bit different. They're younger, so they have a shorter attention span. Mm-hmm. Um, they they may not, they just flat out may not like you, right? So they flat out may not like it. so you have mm-hmm. to take the information, dice it up, and feed mm-hmm. it to them in a way that they might like. You have to give them breaks. And sometimes mm-hmm. you have to kind of make them do it. You have to say, okay, I know you don't like this today. Today's Monday. Mm-hmm. But I've learned from experience, if we keep teaching them, if we spend 30 minutes Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, by the time Wednesday roll around, rolls around, emotionally they've accepted that this is what I do for a half hour every day. Mm-hmm. So, um, we start early. We have a different set of techniques that we use to teach very young children. Um, but I believe that going through that sacrifice of working with them when they're younger, and it's probably harder. It's, it's harder to teach a five-year-old than a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. But the five-year-old, I believe, is going to get much more benefit from it long-term than the 12. Then ah, well, 12 is still at a pretty young age. But then, then let's say the 17-year-old. Right? Okay. Your five-year-old is going to have a lot more mileage. And it probably drops either literally, linearly or exponentially as far as what they can absorb. I, don't, I haven't seen any studies on it, mm. but I would imagine that there's a drop-off in mm. how well you can absorb the material 
And the, the sooner you can get in there and get them exposed to it, mm-hmm. the better. So we start early. We don't discriminate against older kids, but we really want to capture the younger children and, and develop those systems to teach younger children. Mm-hmm. And why do you feel that teaching children these skills young can really help them by the time they're 18? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One of the concrete reasons is we're moving to a much more technical world, mm-hmm. right? So right. a lot of these blue-collar jobs are going away. Um, the, the jobs that are available are becoming more and more technical, and you need more problem-solving skills to solve to solve these problems and to contribute to society. So a very concrete reason is you're going to have a skill set that allows you to write software and develop software that we're all using. Um, granted, I'm aware that technologies to write software are going to be changing over the next several years. So, you know, there's a chance that an AI comes out, you know, mm-hmm. eight, ten years from now and it kills the entire software industry. Then we'll have another problem. But um, I, I look at that as a concrete advantage and I see that in my own life. You know, that's something that I got very good at. Um, I can speak on it. Uh, effectively, uh, I'm very competent in that area because I started so young. And I compare myself to a lot of my peers who may not have started so young, mm-hmm. and some of them have, have challenges and they, they can't perform as, as well as I can. So that's the concrete mm-hmm. reason. The more abstract reason is I believe that when you learn to code, you learn to think in a very solution-oriented way. Mm-hmm. You learn to solve problems because Coding is probably, and you, you learn to solve problems in math, but it's different. Mm-hmm. You learn to solve problems in geometry, but it's different. Coding is a very, it's, it's pure problem solving. It's pure sitting down and figuring out how to solve a problem. How, how you know, I can show you some examples, but we use this program called CodeMonkey okay. to teach our kids, which I, I highly recommend that up. I don't own mm-hmm. anything. I don't get any uh, compensation for recommending it, but I highly recommend it. It's, it's, I ran into it, and I thought it was great, and we just continue to use it. But when my daughter or the, the students in our class, they're sitting down and they're, they're working with CodeMonkey and learning to code, it's a very just intense, focused, problem-solving session. I can't think of anything that's more intensely focused on pure problem-solving for a half hour, an hour, than, work, than having your five-year-old or six-year-old work on code. And, and through that, they're able to develop skills that not only translate into being a software developer when they're 18 or 17 or whatever, mm-hmm. but I think it's going to help them navigate the world better. It's going to help them navigate bureaucracies better. It's going to help them be more analytical when they're determining what's real news and what's fake news. Mm. Um, They're going to be more conscious of people that are around them and how different personality types fit together. And they'll have, they'll have just a very logical way of looking at the world, processing that information and solving problems so that they can move themselves from where they are to where they want to go, whatever their goal is. So I think it um, it has a much broader impact. And I tell a lot of my, my parents that even if 
your kid doesn't go into coding. Let's say they mm -hmm. go into music. They go into art. They're going to still want to run an art business, mm -hmm. potentially. They need to know how to solve problems. They need to know how to do those things. And I think the skill set that we're teaching them will apply to whatever career they go into. And they'll, they'll have a, a, a pretty big advantage over their peers who have yeah, this is incredible. I I was I told Ray this offline that I wish he had created this nonprofit when I was a kid because I would be even more amazing if, you know, to have those tools when you're so young, um, just what Ray was saying with his nonprofit that you'll have these interpersonal skills or you'll have all of these different skills to be able to go into any industry that you want to get into. You'll know how to work with other people, which is always going to be important, learning how to work with others. And so if if we can teach our children all of this now, whether they decide to go into coding or not, this is still, like Ray said, this is important knowledge that our children of today should know that they should be prepared because then even they could make the decision if they want to go to college or not, because they may already have these skills that are necessary. So they might not need college. That's up to the individual and how much they have learned because they'll have just way more knowledge than all of our generations and future generations have had because technology is only going to keep changing. So it's better that they learn what they can now to be the best that they can be. Exactly. That's very true. And, and to, to put it bluntly, and I've alluded to it, but to put it bluntly, a five-year-old can learn what a 20-year-old can't. You know, or an eight-year-old yeah. can learn what a 20 Your brain locks off the ability to learn some of these skill sets for most people. Some people, right. it doesn't. Like some people, they can learn five languages at five, mm -hmm. and a few people, they can still learn them at 20, right? But right. that's a very small percentage of the population Mm -hmm. well, their brain is just wired to absorb languages like that. Right. But you, five year, you, can, you can teach three and five year olds, you know, five, six languages and they learn it with no problem. Yeah. And they, and they're put in that setting where they want to learn. And then, like you said, it's kind of like it's designed in a way that they get used to that routine. So, yeah. you know, and they have, they have to do what they're told. And so when we're older, sometimes we don't, we don't want to. We're like, you know, I'm, I, I would like to learn the five languages, but am I going to force myself? No, it's a little different because now we have the freedom of choice and some of us, you know, won't necessarily stay in that setting. Like it's like what Ray is saying that it's easier when they are younger because you have to follow what your parents say. And if they want you to learn five languages, you can. Exactly. Well, you, you can because... The parents are going to guide you and make mm -hmm. you, right? Right. You don't, or let's let's look at something simpler. If you're in an environment where you've, I read about a story with a kid and he was in kind of, let's imagine it's a hostel. It wasn't a hostel. But let's say it was a hostel. And there are a bunch of people around speaking five different languages. And the kid wants to play with everybody and communicate with everyone. So he's forced to learn mm -hmm. to speak to everyone in their own language. Um, so... At that age, he's in an environment where he's forced to do it, number one. Mm -hmm. And number two, he's, the, the, his brain has the plasticity, has the neuroplasticity 
to easily absorb the five languages. So for instance, we know with languages, if you learn languages as a child, and maybe it's anywhere from three to seven or something like that, mm-hmm. your brain encodes those languages in a different place than when you learn them as an adult. Your brain will literally encode those languages in a different part of the brain. Um, so it's just a much more fluid, they, they believe that it's a much more fluid uh, understanding of the language that, you, that you're able to get as, an, as a child that you just can't access as an adult because your brain just literally has lost that ability. It's like you'll see, um, uh, I'll say this and we'll move on to the next one. It's like um, if, you have a, if you grow up in a different country, let's say mm-hmm. you're, you're from China, right? Mm-hmm. And if you come here and you're 18, you're never going to lose your accent. There are literally certain words that you can't pronounce. There are certain English words mm-hmm. that you can't pronounce because you're locked in. Versus if you were a three-year-old and you migrated from China to the U.S., you, you'll speak perfect English without an, an accent, per se. And you can mm-hmm. pronounce every American syllable and every, every American word. Um, or every English syllable, and every English word. Mm-hmm. So that's just another example of, of of children being able to absorb information mm-hmm. and get develop mastery of information of, of, and a skill set earlier mm-hmm. than they can when they're older. And what are some of the classes and programs that you offer so everybody knows? Gotcha. Right now, we, we focus on two. Um, we focus on teaching kids how to solve Rubik's Cube. So we start with, um, you know, they, they, they don't know how to do it at all. And then by the end of it, they know how to solve the Rubik's Cube, right? Um, so that's, that's the first one. And then the second one is we, we do coding classes. So we do coding classes on CodeMonkey and we teach, teach kids how to cube. We've noticed that particularly in the virtual environment, it's easier to teach the coding classes mm-hmm. than it is to teach the, the Rubik's Cube classes. Um, we can still teach Rubik's Cubes over Cube, but it's hard to kind of orient the Cube and things like that. So mm-hmm. we have to keep the class sizes really small. Um, okay. And, and we are, we're starting to leverage more on parent involvement. So it's not, it's, it's turning into more of a, a parent-child activity. So we, we almost teach the parents and the children together. And then the, the, the parent is able to help out that child because the parent, it's easier for us to communicate whether it's solving Rubik's Cube over the computer or whether it's coding as well over the computer. And then the, the parent can, can help the child out. Mm, that's great. They're involved too. Yes. And what do you feel you would have been like if you – you know, were a child that you were involved earlier. I know you said you were eight years old um, when you started getting software, but what do you think you would have been like if you, you know, were a child at the age of five and you got involved in your nonprofit? How do you think it would have affected you as an adult? That's a good question. I, I think some some of the major differences, it would have given me consistency mm. because I would I would code and then I would stop and I would, you know, do some other random stuff, and then I would go to code again, and I would stop. And so it was very on and off. Mm-hmm. But if I ha- if I was a member of this group, mm-hmm. I would have had kind of a multi-year mentor, basically, to help me from the time I was five from the time to the time I was eighteen, and help me understand my strengths and weaknesses. Help me understand 
um, who's constantly giving me new challenges and new projects to work on. And then I would also have been in an environment where I have peers who are working on other technical things. So that helps mm. to uh, spark motivation, mm-hmm. spark interest in different uh, different uh, technologies as well. And we see that happen because we have um, – it's turning into kind of an advanced tech head class. I call it, I started out call, calling it the advanced cubing class. So we take all the kids that know how to solve the cube and we put them together – and they're doing things like coding and robotics. And I, in fact, I forgot to mention this. We have kind of a general group for the kids tend to be a little bit older, or at least a little bit more advanced. Okay. And they're all doing different things. And what I do is I meet with them every week. And I try to do exactly what I just said. I try to mm-hmm. give them challenges to make sure that they're on track. And I let them share what they're doing with other children. So it creates this kind of intellectual tech kid community mm-hmm. where the kids are start feeding off of each other. Like for instance, my nephew, my sister is in the class and my nephew, he wasn't really that interested in the Rubik's cube at mm-hmm. first, but he would do it and he wasn't really, he's five and he wasn't really that interested in it, but we were, we had him working on it. And then he saw a 12 year old bang it out in 40 seconds. Right. Right. So then he gets motivated okay. because it's someone who's not his mm-hmm. uncle or not his mom or not his dad. Who's doing? It's another big kid Mm -hmm. who's doing it, and they start feeding off of each other, and that's really, really helpful for kids in helping their their path to success Mm -hmm. because it's not just coming from some adult, right? Someone else who they think is that that twelve year old is really cool. Yeah, I'm not, but the twelve year old. (laughs) (laughs) And it probably helps having that competitive nature too like oh if he can do it i'm going to do it too exactly. i'm going to show him <laughs> kids, kids are like that a lot yeah see if, if uh, my daughter's friend got into it like that because she saw my daughter doing it then miley can yeah. do it i can do it and then she, she wants to learn how to do it so yeah that that competitive spirit and just being in the group and, mm-hmm. and interacting with other kids you pull out the, the competitive spirit and uh, it sparks motivation and, and interest. Yeah. And they probably are able to create friendships that way too, which is Absolutely. which is smart. To they need to learn the social interaction at a young age, so that's helpful that it ties all of that in together. Absolutely, and, and cre- creating a peer group mm. where mm-hmm. you can discuss these things because you know, particularly when kids are young. There's everyone has their kind of their, their clique. So there's the kids, the nerdy kids, and then there's the jocks, and then they're the popular kids. So they're, they're different cliques, and they, they focus on certain things. So a lot of kids who are really interested in who are may, maybe naturally interested in um, these types of STEM activities, they don't have anyone to really interact with, and they're they're a little bit of outcasts because mm. of that. So our goal is to grab those kids who have the natural interest. And then expand it. So, like, my daughter is probably not a natural techie. Mm-hmm. She's not. She's more, she's very social, mm-hmm. and she likes to perform, and she's a singer. She likes yeah. to sing. That's what she likes to do. But I'm grabbing her, and I'm exposing her to this information. I don't think, ultimately, she's going to go in. She may or may not. I don't mm-hmm. know. It doesn't matter to me. But she's mm-hmm. going to have this skill set. But I'm exposing her to the information. And now... You know, she's looking at the 
the the air conditioner and she's looking inside of it and she's trying to oh look this thing in there is spinning and that's wow. what makes the cold air comes out and then the other day she um she had a little tablet that was broken and she unscrewed the back of it and took the batteries out and changed the batteries those are really techy things for kids to do and your normal kid who is mm-hmm. i'm a performer i'm a social butterfly those aren't things that they're naturally drawn to so I mean I could be wrong but I I don't think that's that was the path that she would have necessarily gone down mm. um and then even playing with legos you know a lot of girls mm. that particularly if you look at a lot of girls I was reading a book called it's called why combinator but it's about startups in uh in silicon valley but there are not in, we have many many more men than women but the girls who were in the group and performed well they happened to have fathers who were engineers they played with legos when they were kids but they had dads who were engineers who helped to trigger the interest in them mm. right so they gave them toys and they gave them guidance and leadership to help trigger spark that interest and once that interest sparked they were able to to take it and and run with it over time and and they they start being more interested in in things like legos mm. my daughter picks up legos oh. now, and that was not necessarily something that she was interested in um in the beginning so i think mm. if you if you start talking also about introducing more women to stem as well mm-hmm. these this early childhood exposure is also going to have a huge impact on their life that they may not get otherwise because people just right. don't know. They don't put the stuff in front of them. It helps keep them open-minded. Yes. Yeah. And and help more than that, it helps to open their mind. Mm-hmm. So it, it literally I think it helps to open their mind to another part of, of of experience that they may not necessarily gravitate to mm-hmm. um without that that outside exposure. Yeah. The fact that she was able to think of that with the air conditioning, I don't I don't think I ever said that when I was a kid. So that just shows how yeah. big of an impact what you're doing is really it's affecting your daughter in such a positive way. So that's just yeah. a, like just hearing that. I was like, wow. A child yeah. pointing that out. Yeah, it's something I would have done as a kid. Oh. Okay. But it's not that, but I was that nerdy kid. So mm. I was that nerdy kid. But it's my daughter's not the nerdy kid. She is she is so social. She's so, you know, she has this great personality. She's a people person, you know? Yeah. Um I I couldn't imagine I, I don't mm. think it would have happened other I, I could be wrong, but I don't yeah. think so. Well, that's great. And so that just shows another thing that what you're doing is helping so many children. And so um, what else do you think is important for parents to understand in with child development? And how else do you think they could prepare their children for adulthood? Maybe things okay. that they don't know. Um, I'll make that disclosure. I'm not an educator by, uh, by training. I'm, I'm not... Uh, not a teacher by training uh, any of those things um based on, but I, i'm a person who's thought about it for a long time and i've read a lot of quite a fair bit about it but i think i think consistency is important so knowing what you mm-hmm. want to do having a goal what do you want to teach your kids um mm-hmm. and, and having and outlining what those things are so 
with uh, with us, we're still building out our program. So we start with things like coding. Um, we start with solving a Rubik's cube, and then we want to add. We're I just got some books on genetics for for small children, um, circuitry, uh, things like that. So we want to expand to other fields uh, of, of of interest. Um, but I think consistency. So p- picking a goal. What do you want to teach? And just like you would teach the piano, that's, that's mm-hmm. probably a good example. Just like you teach the piano, if you want your kid to teach, to learn the piano, be very good at, at, at playing the piano. You start at a young age, you have piano lessons, you know, once a week or, or whatever it is, and then you practice every day. And those are, that's probably the core, and you're always advancing. You're always advancing and giving, giving positive feedback. And I think those software and all these other skills require the same training and the, the same methodologies that you would use to teach a kid a piano. The issue is there are probably not as many, maybe now there are, but mm-hmm. because of the online tools, but I won't say there are not as many resources for it because there are plenty of resources for it now. It's just not part of our culture. Whereas it's very much part of our culture. It's starting to become part of our culture. But it's very much part of our culture to teach a kid how to play piano, how to play soccer, um, how to, you know, do karate. How right. to, uh, so those things are more in our consciousness. But mm-hmm. teaching a kid genetics mm-hmm. at five years old and starting to teach, that's not in our consciousness yeah. anywhere. And I'm proposing to people that, if you start teaching your kids genetics at five or eight years old, you have someone who could potentially have a much better grasp of genetics as an adult than when they're than if they waited until they were in college and they start taking that high level mm-hmm. genetics course. Right. And, and specifically, you have the better chance of an average child of who's just average, average intelligence, mm-hmm. average performance they have a much better chance of performing better. And I think that's where it really helps. If you have a kid who's a genius, they're they're gonna do they're gonna do it regardless, right? right? If a kid is genius, it really doesn't matter. If your IQ is 140, 150, you're gonna kill it. Right? If, yeah. if you get the right you still need the right feedback mm-hmm. and things like that from family and friends and to be in the right environment. Right. But if you're an average, I, I think I was probably a relatively average kid. I, was, I had a nerdy interest, but I was a relatively average kid. But I had an interest in learning, but I was I was pretty average, I think, overall. I mean, it's all relative. But um, I got really good in that specific area because, of, I, I believe, because of the early childhood exposure. So we just try to translate all the things that people do with piano mm-hmm. and all those parenting skills that they um, use to help their child learn a piano or learn a sport, we just translate that into science uh, and STEM-based activities. And with um, in CubeUp Solutions, so the classes are free, right? They're yes. free for, okay. The classes are free. At some point, we'll probably change it so that there's a fee for it as we scale it. Right now, we're, we're still in pilot phase. So okay. we're still figuring out the way things work. It's small enough that I just buy Rubik's Cubes for kids and we send them out. Um, but Rubik's Cubes are cheap mm-hmm. and we don't, we don't charge for our time. Right now, we're just, 
we're really learning. It's really an experiment now. It's still in, in an experimental pilot phase where we're learning how to scale it. So that's where some of the ideas I mentioned, like really making it more of a parent and child activity rather than just the child. These are mm -hmm. things that we've learned as mm -hmm. we're trying to find the ultimate solution on how to scale keep up. So the, the problem is how, okay, I can do it with my daughter. Mm -hmm. Then how do I do it with, you know, five kids or 10 kids? And now mm -hmm. how do I scale it over Zoom across the country? Right. So that, that's the problem that we're facing now. And that's the solution that we're looking for. So uh, right now it's free. Okay. Um, we'll have a nominal cost, but I, I don't look at it as, as a profit center for me. Mm -hmm. My business, uh, we have a, I have a custom software development company. That's my profit center. Cube Up Solutions is a passion project. And, you know, I just want to teach millions of kids across the country and across the world. Step and how to cube and teach them from a young age so that they can compete in a market as when they get older. And that, that's my goal. And where can our listeners connect with you or um, sign up for any of the classes so that they can participate? Gotcha. Um, if you go to cubeup.org, uh, you can find us there. And then on Instagram, you can find us on cubeupsolutions.com uh, on Instagram. And Instagram is probably the best way to find us right now. Let me make sure I get the, um, get the name right for you. Uh, yeah, it's cubeupsolutions on Instagram. So if you go to cubeupsolutions on Instagram, you can message us there. You can follow us there. And um, we have a team of people who manages new messages. That's how we found you. Um, and, uh, you can get in touch with us and get, get signed up right there. Thank you so much, Ray, for being on the show. And thank you for everything that you're doing. I'm excited for a lot more kids to get involved with your nonprofit. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time as well, Thank you so much for joining me on the Design Your Happiness podcast. I appreciate you for listening and I hope you feel inspired. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your loved ones. I hope you have a beautiful day and get excited to design your happiness.